Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we find out about the science of measurement and how we define what everything is. When you're trying to find something in height or weight, you don't really want that definition to change over time. And if you want to make one ruler, how do you know that the next ruler you make is still the same length? This week, the science of measurement over time and how it's evolved over millennia to the very latest today. If you tried to describe yourself, one of the things that you may say about yourself could be how tall you are. Or maybe, getting a bit personal, you might ask how much you weigh. Or maybe you're talking about how much ingredients you need in your recipe, or the size of your car, or how far you need to walk to go to work. Or perhaps you're just trying to make sure you've got the ratios right in the cake that you're making. Units of measurement are incredibly important, but when it comes to defining what is and what isn't the right measurement, people can have a disagreement. And if that disagreement spills out, how do you know who's right? Now we have standard systems of measurement, and that hasn't always been the case. But have you ever stopped to think, what exactly is a meter? How exactly do we define a kilogram? Where do these get these numbers from? I mean, it's easy enough if I draw out a line and say that, oh yeah, I know roughly that this space between my fingers is a centimeter. You can go to a ruler and check it out. But how did you make that ruler in the first place? And how do you know if your ruler that you're measuring out a centimetre against is even accurate? Maybe the plastic has expanded or shrunk over time. Or the marking was printed in the wrong spot. So then you compare it to another ruler and another ruler. But all of these have to point back to some master replica that you would use to basically confirm that you're correct. And that's just for an obvious thing like distance. How do you define mass? And how do you define something even more intangible like temperature or current? And fortunately enough, scientists have been working for literally thousands of years to address this very topic. And in November 2018, we've actually ticked a very big milestone. That is, thanks to some hardworking scientists over a long period of time, we now have an actual measurement for mass that can be defined in a reputable, convenient way that doesn't require an artifact that might change over time. But before we find out about the changing definition of mass, we're going to take a step back and look at the history of units of measurement. How did we end up in this situation in the first place, and what are some of the challenges that we've faced over time? How do some of the old legacy systems sort of wind up into the cutting-edge science of today? Now, like most things, we can trace back the standardised measures of length and weight all the way back to the cradle, so to speak, of civilization. That's the region in Mesopotamia, which you might find Babylon or Sumeria, and extending through the Indus Valley through to India and Central Asia, and of course spreading all the way eventually across to the rest of the world, places like China and so on. But places like Babylon and Egypt are very interesting to study from an archaeological perspective, but also from a scientific perspective. Because we know around three to 4,000 years BCE, so before the Common Era, which means, let's talk about 
6,000 years ago, to be precise. We know that people started standardizing measurements just as soon as they started building large settlements, which would be the first towns and cities. These large settlements needed trade. And when you're trying to trade, well, you need to know exactly that you're getting a fair deal. When we started to formalize agriculture, we started to worry about weights of things. Because if you're making bread or trading bread for maybe something else like meat or drinks or goods like cloth, you want to have a good idea that you're getting a fair deal today and next time you come back to trade. So it won't be a surprise that units of measurement for volume and mass are some of the earliest ones that we have consistent archaeological records for. And some of them are actually still with us today. Now, most of the standard measurements were based around measurements standards using grain as the base unit, saying that something was a single grain and then working up from there in standard weights. Depending on which grain you used as your base, of course, though, your weights would change. But you might say that, well, we know that a pound or a shekel or a talent are all basically different measurements of certain volumes of grain that you're measuring. And over time, you could build stone weights or metal weights to replicate this. So you didn't actually have to each time bring out a lump of grain. But this was a pretty common system of measurement that gave us the words such as pound, shekel, and talent. But also in other countries, in China, it's the Jin. In India, they use a similar method as well. But these intricate systems of weights were actually pretty long-lasting. If you've ever bought jewellery, you probably heard the phrase carat. And carat is a system of measurement that we use for metals that is part of the Troy system. But importantly, carat is based around the weight of a seed, a cabot seed. And that is the original, I guess, standard artifact for carats, which then go into effect things like diamond and gold today. Now, that's an example of how a unit of measure can travel with us over millennia into the current era. Another example is what we use to define length. Often with length, we had things like cubit, but the traditional measurement is actually based around the distance on your palm, so from the base of your palm to your fingertip, or maybe the length of a finger, or from the outstretched hand all the way up to your ending of your arm, or the forearm. All these different measurements for length over time were built up, and we used then multiples of those to get volume. So if you hear descriptions in ancient texts, you might hear them refer to cubits. That's in general where they're talking about. Lots of different countries, independently or through common exchange of ideas and trade, ended up with roughly similar measurements, or ideas for measurement. But the actual measurement itself was as varied as people's arm lengths. Now the Romans, amongst others, tried to standardise this across their empire. And if you hear the word mile, well that comes from 5,000 Roman feet, which was another standard measure. And that then became adapted by the British system over time as well. One of the problems with any measurement system, no matter what unit you call it, is you need some artifact to define a standard. In ancient India, in the Indus Valley, of course, they used engraved rulers made of ivory, which was pretty stable. In China, the qi, the standard minimum unit of length, was actually then as decreed by the Yellow Emperor, a a historical ruler or founder of the actual idea of Empire of China. Part myth, part historical fact many, many millennia ago. But 
Ever since then, units of measure have existed in China, for example, but then there were regional variants. Each ruler of a certain region at times had the ability to change the length of the qi. The unit stayed the same, but what it actually meant drifted over time. And that too occurred in Europe and many other places, because they all rely on an artifact. If you had an iron bar and said, well, that is the length of one rod, or that is the length of one yard or foot, that bar might shrink or grow or change. Maybe it gets damaged, maybe it gets stolen. These are all problems that you have to face. Maybe when you make one series of measurements, you find out that over time that that measurement has drifted. So when you measure the first ruler, the first copy is okay, but the second and third and fourth are okay. But by the time you're 10 copies down the chain, you've changed in size. These are all the problems that scientists were facing. Another big issue is trying to make a system that's consistent, a system that has a logical basis, i.e. how many inches are there in a foot? Well, the inches to foot thing uses 12, which is a useful number in some degree because you could divide it in a number of different ways, which is great if you're just trying to do simple division in your head, but not great if you want to have a logical system that works on the next level. So people have been attracted to a decimal-based system for all measurements, mostly because using powers of 10 as the base unit, base 10, is a pretty standard one that over time most of the world started to adopt. Of course, we had ancient Babylon's mirror using base 16 and base other numbers, but base 10 seems to be where most people ended up. Now, based on that, then you'd say that, well, you'd want all your systems to be built around 10. So if I have a thousand of something, then that's sort of one level up in the units. And that meant for doing scientific calculations, you had an easy way of handling all these varying units without having to define a whole new unit when you got up a level. So by the Age of Enlightenment, which is broadly the 1700s, pretty much all across the world, everyone has their own units of measure. And these can vary from trade to trade. So jewelers may use a different measuring system to bakers. And from region to region, even down to town to town, may all have a different way of defining the units of measure that are important to them, let alone from country to country. And in the Enlightenment period, scientists were trying to tackle some of the fundamental questions about human existence and the universe around them. And they couldn't do that if they didn't have a language with which to talk to each other. And that's where it became incredibly important for scientists to try and define the units of measure. One example of a move to standardisation really came out of the 1790 panel of five leading French scientists, all appointed after the French Revolution by the Académie des Sciences, to investigate two things, weights and measures. And these scientists included Jean-Charles de Borda, Joseph-Louis Lagrange, Pierre-Simon Laplace, Gaspard Monnier, and Nicolas de Concordet. And this panel went around trying to analyse all the different systems of weights and measures, and then trying to develop one that was based on some clear, unquestionable piece of evidence, something that could be a fundamental measure. Now, for example, to define latitude, they proposed measuring the distance between Dunkirk and Barcelona and triangulating between them. They tried to verify the length of the second at different points on the Earth, specifically the 45-degree latitude. Trying to verify the weight of a given volume of water to get the volume for litre 
by measuring it in a vacuum. And they had all these great ideas to come up with ways to define a unit of measure based on some measurement of a fundamental thing in nature. This is not the first time this has been suggested, but it is a very unique and strategic way of actually approaching this problem. Now, once they came up with uh, this idea, they then commissioned the making of several artifacts. And these precursor artifacts were made in varying size. For example, though we had good estimates of the distance from certain the meridian passing through Paris all the way to the North Pole, they decided to make that distance a fraction of that to be the meter. And that would be a pretty good way to define it because now we're using the size of the Earth to define the meter. And based on this and some surveys, they had a rough idea of how big that might be, but they could be anywhere over a variance of almost half a meter. So they made a series of platinum bars, platinum being a pretty stable material. And they called that the provisional meter. When they did the surveys to confirm this in more accurate numbers, they could pick out of their prototypes the actual one that would be accepted as the standard, the artifact. And they did a similar thing with gram, the unit of mass that they decided for weight. But the problem is that gram was just too small to be practical, so they added a prefix, kilo, and that gave it the name kilogram. Now, it's interesting because the idea of prefixing and then having this multiplication effect for changing the size of a unit, which is key to a decimal-based metric-based system, was incredibly important. Um, but kilogram is the only SI unit that actually has a prefix in its base unit title. Now, the provisional kilogram was made by saying, well, it's a cubic decimeter or one litre of water. Now, that's good, but water under what conditions? So that was always the challenge, how to get a really good and reliable measurement and one that is consistent. But in the 1790s, that was a pretty good start. And over time, this system was adapted and changed. Now, in 1860s, the British Association for the Advancement of Science, which included such luminaries as William Thomson, who is known as Lord Kelvin, James Clerk Mas Maxwell, and James Prescott Joule, tried to think of ways to define some of the important things that they were investigating, which were temperature, electricity, energy. They needed units of measure for that as well. Now, they had the centimetre-gram-second system that was put forward by the French, but they needed ways to include other units inside it. And they threw them along with the CGS system. Now, in 1867, all these different standards were sort of tried to be brought together at a large convention, which led to the creation of the International Bureau of Weights and Measures. This was created to try and create what was later became, in 1875, the Convention of the Meter, which was signed by 17 countries, which established a number of different agencies for measuring, but also for keeping charge of prototypes of these artifacts of these base units, like the kilogram and the meter. So following the convention of the meter, in 1889, the Bureau of Weights and Measures ended up with the prototypes of length and measurement in their custody. Now, that was good, and it was a very good standard for a long period of time. And that lasted till pretty much after the Second World War. But at that point, scientists were really looking for a way to move away from these physical artifacts as a standard, because they are subject to a bunch of change.
Now, in 1948, we had the first movements towards what would become the Système International, or SI. It's a practical system of units that defines a group of base units that we can then derive all the other units. And these could be calculated and found from things in nature, not relying on artefacts. Now, over time, this got refined and refined, and we ended up with the base grouping of the International System of Units, SI units, really locked down in the 1950s. And this included the base units of the meter for distance, kilogram for mass, second for time, ampere for current, degree Kelvin for temperature, and candela for light intensity. And then from there, you could derive all other units, 16 of them at the starting point. So one of the first things people tried to define under the new System International was to use the microwave radiation released and absorbed by a cesium atom. And that became an atomic clock that would define time without having to worry about things shifting from time to time, region to region, or trying to accurately keep a clock turning. Then in 1983, the SI units got a new boost by turning to measuring distance, not with some kind of radiation, but with how far light travels, and doing so in a vacuum, where they can rule out the interactions or variability that may occur. It's a pure measurement of light, and that made rulers and artifacts completely obsolete. But mass still kept locked away inside the vaults of the International Bureau of Weights and Measures. There resting inside these vaults was the International Prototype Kilogram. It is one of the most precious and valuable items in the world, simply because it is the device and the item and the weight used to calibrate all other mass standards scattered across the world for over 40 years. It's called Le Grand K, informally. But it also has sister pairs, which they use to help keep track of the International Prototype Kilogram. And that was really problematic because by studying the IPK and its pairs over time, we realized that even this very stable piece of metal stored in a secret vault was changing. And therefore, we needed to eliminate it, get rid of this old artifact, both in historical sense, but also a literal measurement sense. So how could you define and capture weight in a, a uniform way that doesn't change over time? Now, the way in which the kilogram is going to be redefined will draw on one of the most famous scientific equations, one that you know, E equals mc squared. But it will also use a more important formula, one which was developed by Max Planck. Now, Planck was a 19th century physicist, and one of the main things that Planck did was show that electromagnetic energy at any given frequency could only be emitted in chunks, discrete amounts, which he called quanta. And these quanta give off energy, but that energy is proportional to some value h. So that might sound like a bit of hardcore physics, but it is important because it kicked off quantum mechanics, all about these discrete emissions of energy. Now, E equals mc squared works into it because that means energy is the multiple of mass and the speed of light. 
related, based on a similar concept then, is E equals HV, where H is Planck's constant and V is the frequency. So what that means is now we have a relationship between mass and energy, good, but also energy and Planck's constant. And scientists thought maybe we can go the other way. Can we measure mass then using something which we know is a universal fact, a property that applies to all atoms and everything everywhere, Planck's constant? And that took a lot of work and a lot of complicated empirical science. But Brian Kibble developed a process outlined in 1975 at the UK National Physics Laboratory. And it was an idea called a Kibble balance. And through this, it enables people to accurately measure the value of H, of Planck's constant. And this is important because if scientists could build really, really accurate Kibble balances and could get a really good measurement of H, then by just doing some math, you could get a universal measurement of mass. That would mean you wouldn't need any more artifacts. Now, ever since the scientific community was thrown down the gauntlet of trying to come up with a really, really accurate measurement of H, of Planck's constant, with huge confidence and repeatability, no matter where you did it, they've been working, working, and working. And we've now got to the point where we can define H with an uncertainty in the calculation of 13 parts in a billion. So that's 13 over a billion in terms of error between everyone measuring it. So that's a pretty good measure. But we've been lowering it and lowering it and lowering it and getting even more accurate in that measurement. And now the international community of scientists, especially those, the Bureau of Weights and Measures, who are in charge of setting the SI units, have pretty much all agreed that there is a fixed value for Planck's constant, H, that we can have. And what that means now is that you can measure and define mass with just purely on a fundamental constant of the universe without relying on any artifact stored in a vault deep inside the countryside of France. Now, with all this talk of setting a new standard for kilogram, it would be remiss of me to not mention another potential way of redefining the kilogram. One that doesn't rely on Planck's constant, but instead another important constant in physics and chemistry. And that, of course, is the Avogadro constant. Now, the Avogadro constant is technically defined as the number of carbon-12 atoms, so it's carbon atom with a total of 12 protons and 12 neutrons, found inside 12 grams. What that ends up with is the number is equal to about 6.00 by 10 to the 23, Avogadro's number. Avogadro's constant, if you define in the SI units. And that's really, really important. The, the idea was, though, since that defines mass, maybe you could work backwards. And since early 1990s, a team of international scientists called the International Avogadro Coordination, IAC, or International Avogadro Project, have been trying to build a super accurate sphere made not of carbon-12 atoms, but of uniform crystal of silicon-28, carefully machined into each into spheres with mass of one kilogram. Now, why silicon? It's incredibly precise, meaning that you could build a lattice which could make a perfect sphere. And from there, you could work backwards and say, well, we know how many atoms are inside this, and we can work backwards by using Avogadro's constant to then define a universal mass. That's fascinating, but also tricky, because you trade one constant for another. 
but you can actually use this project to sort of calibrate as well the measurement of Planck's constant. So not only can you calculate mass one way, but by using fundamental forces, we can be confident that even if we choose the wrong starting point, as long as we can then derive with other units, we can use it to confirm and update our measurement as time goes on and we build more and more accurate measuring devices. So what's next for the kilogram? Well, that's it. We've got it defined. We've measured Planck's constant. Maybe we could measure Planck's constant even more accurately than we have already. Maybe we could cross-check against Avogadro's number. But we now defined mass in a way that doesn't rely on any physical artifact. That means we have a pretty universal definition for all of the fundamental SI units, the fundamental forces that govern everything around us, whether that be temperature, mass, distance, or time, or even something less tangible like light intensity or the current of electricity. We now have definitions for those that work no matter where you are or when you are undertaking that measurement. But it's taken us millennia to get to this point. But scientists have finally cracked that code and have come into effect here for a kilogram here in November 2018. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From ancient Mesopotamia all the way through to the modern era, we found how we've defined units and come up with new and ingenious ways to measure them in terms of fundamental forces. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.